This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I am one of your hosts, Kristen Struer, and you're listening to Episode 10. Imagine if for you to get to school or the local health clinic to see the doctor required you to cross a river and you had to risk your life to get there. Or imagine there was a way for you to cross the river for half the year during the dry season. But in the rainy season, you can't cross at all to reach school or the doctor. This is the case for more than 1 billion people in the world. Let that sit for a minute. Now let me ask you, do you think that this is a problem that can be solved in this lifetime? Today, I'm talking with Avery Bang, who thinks it is. You all, this woman is a force. What I love about Avery is that she's smart and practical, yet daring and idealistic. She went from being a college soccer player from Iowa to becoming an engineer and is now the CEO of Bridges to Prosperity. Bridges to Prosperity works with isolated communities to create access to healthcare, education, and economic opportunities by building footbridges over impassable rivers. They have reached more than 1 million people through their work, which is literally changing lives and improving the quality of life. In this conversation, you will hear about Avery's incredible vision and work. We talk about what balance looks like for her and how her wife helps her with that. We reflect on being born into the lives we were, and we talk about Avery's creative penchant which has included multiple house flips. I'm so encouraged and inspired by my conversation with Avery, and I'm excited to introduce this incredible woman to you. Enjoy my conversation with Avery. Avery, thank you so much for joining us today on the Illuminate podcast. I have really been looking forward to our time together. Um, just having seen from afar your incredible career and what you have done as the CEO of Bridges to Prosperity. Oh, it's totally my pleasure. Thanks, Kristen, for the invitation. So Avery, tell, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now and Bridges to Prosperity and the mission behind that. Absolutely. So Bridges to Prosperity is really focused on physically connecting people who live entirely in the walking world. So if you could imagine, you know, you walk to school or you walk to a healthcare clinic or you walk to and from your farm to the market, um, some of the barriers that are just natural that you and I might not even think about, such as rivers, can be the difference between making it to those places and not. Um, and Bridges to Prosperity is really, really focused on how can you connect those most isolated populations to enable them to have better 
um, healthcare outcomes, uh, educational achievement outcomes, and it's uh, critically also be able to increase folks' um, incomes and livelihoods. And you know, as an organization, we've really focused on how can we, you know, work community by community uh, for almost you know 15, 16 years now. And we just recently made a pretty structural pivot where we um, started working with the national level governments to ask the critical question of what would it take to solve the problem of rural isolation in your entire country. Um, and the government of Rwanda has um, signed up and threw their hand in the air saying, we would love to be able to connect our most rural isolated people. Um, and we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. Um, so they've put in 40% of the total uh, money that's going to be required for us to connect 1.1 million people in Rwanda um, all by 2024. So we're quite busy um, and, and really excited with this new opportunity. Wow, that's incredible. So are you helping them identify the communities that you're building these bridges across Rwanda? Yeah. So, you know, I think being able to figure out where people are the most isolated is, is a multifaceted, um, you know, task, if you think of it this way. Um, for years and years, we've really relied on local government. So effectively, you could think about showing up to a state or even a city government and saying, hey, you know, where are your people facing challenges of movement and rural mobility? And we would talk about, you know, asking critical questions where maybe school attendance um, was variant throughout the year and maybe lower in this in the rainy season. Um, we'd ask questions like, where are market days, um, you know, sometimes having a dip in, in people coming, uh, again, seasonally or due to flash floods. And those local governments would help us understand where their populations were currently isolated and currently experiencing this kind of poverty due to isolation. And when we moved uh, from saying, you know, project by project, year by year, into looking at how do we really solve this problem for an entire country, we had to really move up the food chain a little bit. And, and that happens in a couple of ways. Um, one is we really started working more at the ministerial level. So thinking about like the federal government um, and helping to understand what their plans are. You know, where do you extend uh, feeder roads, for example, where these, you know, currently there is nothing and then you bring in a bulldozer and effectively do a cut and fill. So you just have a, a you know, dirt road. Well, those dirt roads are the next best thing to pedestrian bridges. And what we really focus on are these pedestrian bridges that give uh, huge uh, changes in livelihoods to people who walk everywhere. But if we can work with national level ministries to coordinate where these last mile bridges connect up with these new input feeder roads, we're going to be more catalytic in those investments. And so I think as we're talking about how do you pick sites, now it's coming from not only the national as well as these local governments and also, of course, the communities um, vocalizing that need themselves. Um, and, and, and I think part of what we're seeing is that is a really important triage, not only communities, local government, national government, but it takes a tremendous amount of resource and time. So something that we've been working on for the last two years about is how can we start to digitize to accelerate some of the understanding of where populations are constrained. Um, so we have a essentially a geospatial um, analyst specialist who helps to think about where can you take existing data sets of where people are and where population centers are trying to get to. So for example, where are markets, where are water points, where are schools, where are healthcare clinics? Um, and critically, overlaying that with existing data of riverways and, and also um, essentially terrain data. 
and helping us to predict more reliably where we think people are currently constrained. And in the future, we hope to be able to then also be able to create more of a predictive quality of what would happen if, if these communities were connected, what would change? How many people would be now saving how many hours of time uh, and critically also not having to risk their lives uh, just to do something so simple as go to school? So finding a, finding where to build the most high need bridges right now is complicated <laughs> and takes a lot of time and a lot of people. Uh, but you know, moving forward, we're hoping to complement that with a more digital strategy as well. That's incredible. So tell me about a community that didn't have access to a health clinic or a school until Bridges to Prosperity arrived. And then what did that transformation look like? Yeah, I mean, there's so many personal examples. Um, You know, I think many of my dear friends are people that are now using bridges every day um, that help to build their own bridge. Uh, But, you know, I think a really concrete example uh, it's one of the very, very first bridges that I ever worked on. Um, it was in a rural community in, called Yavina, Peru. And there were these, um, essentially, can you imagine braided vines of just long, dried out vines that would be braided into something of a reed. And they'd do two of these thick reeds. And that would be attached on one side of the river with a bunch of heavy stones. And then they would cross this river. And on the other side, be you know essentially, likewise, just a bunch of heavy stones uh, laying on top of them to make it so you could you could cross these braided vines over the river. And I can assure you this was terrifying <laughs> uh, to try to walk across one of these swinging braided vines while holding on to the other. And there was this little boy, um, Rolio, who um, I believe it was his cousin who had passed away, although it's a, it's a little fuzzy if it was a, a like literal cousin or like a familial sense of cousin our friend sense of cousin. Um, but you know, he was probably no more than six or seven years old. Um, when I was there helping work on a bridge project and his dad was our Mason. And so, you know, every day we'd be, you know, going down to the project and working on, you know, mixing cement and, you know, bending reed bar and, you know, working on this bridge with his, with his Mason father and, you know, got to talking and it was, such a deep sense of pride that he was going to enable his son to go to school year round. And I, you know, kind of like looked at him and I was like, well, these braided vines are here. And he's like, Oh, Oh, but this is only during the dry season Hmm. during, during the rainy season, which is six months of the year here. This is impassable. And you see this river and he like points it, you know, points it there. And he's like, it gets this wide. And, you know, obviously the design engineering, we had accounted for what we could tell and visually see was definitely high water in that expanse. But to hear from him, it was six months a year. And then his son currently was only being educated half of the year because of how dangerous that river was, was such a um, perspective changing experience for me uh, to see and to, you know, kind of intellectually understand is one thing, but to have that sit and to feel it and to understand like how powerfully this man was motivated to have this new access for his son um, and for, you know, someday his grandson. That was really a, a game changer for me. Wow. That's amazing. And, you know, I think it, it is interesting. It's not something that you think about every day in terms of the, the bridge access in, you know, in my work in public health. We do talk a lot about the 
transport and inaccessibility to health clinics. But the topic of the bridges and the impassable means that some people experience in order to try to attempt to get to that health care isn't something that is as widely talked about as it sounds like it should be. I mean, Christian, it's crazy. I, I mean, not crazy, but there are one billion people, that's one in seven humans on the planet, that walk everywhere and they cannot physically get to where they need to go year round. And I mean, you think about like, you know, I, I think about this, you know, bottom of the you know bottom billion, bottom of the pyramid folks who really are given the very least opportunity. There's a Venn diagram of uh, poverty of health, poverty of education, poverty of water access, um, certainly, you know, a, a financial poverty. And it's oftentimes just the lack of, of, you know, the ability to predictably understand your constraints and be able to absorb shock. And, you know, shock at this point, oftentimes is climate change has made it so communities who used to be able to predictably know when they could or couldn't produce a certain type of crop, when they could or couldn't be able to make sure they get to market, all of that's being thrown up in the air. And so for the billion people that walk everywhere. A billion you know, people walk everywhere. A billion people, and, they, and they're isolated. Mm-hmm. So that there's more than a billion people that walk everywhere. But this is like the World Bank has a rural access index, which does a, you know, a pretty good, you know, sense of, you know, how people um, in their in their levels of isolation are correlated to a number of different, um, you know, both health and economic indicators. And they're directly related. And I think to your good point, it's, you know, oftentimes we're thinking about, you know, solving you know, something that is acute and is coming into, you know, into the, into the clinic without maybe always addressing some of the structural underbelly of why, um, you know, some of those, those health constraints have happened. And, you know, I think the, the water and sanitation sector has made tremendous strides in the last several decades where people now are understanding the criticality of, of water infrastructure, particularly in the rural context, um, for public health outcomes. And I think one of the opportunities that we have at Bridges to Prosperity is to help to elevate the understanding of the criticality of access. Because if you can build all the healthcare clinics in the world or all of the schools, but if you can't physically get the entire population to those services, then you're not really you know, maximizing um, those investments. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, that's certainly the social determinants of health conversation that's critical to that. And amazing that you all are addressing this in so many communities around the world. How many countries is Bridges to Prosperities in? Yeah, we've worked with governments in 20 countries. Um, and right now we're really, really focused on East Africa because just to be really um, you know, candid, I think uh, as a social sector leader, you have to think about where your resources can be best spent, both time and money. And uh, 78% of the world's populations who are isolated, aforementioned, live in Africa. 78%? Really? Yeah. uh Hmm. And so I think as we think about that, you know, population density plays a tremendous role uh, as as well as, you know, as you think about population growth, that's going to only get get more significant. But we are seeing, um, you know, starting in East Africa uh, is really one of the hotbeds of our focus and attention we also have a great program in Bolivia that is likewise helping to connect rural populations, um, but the population density makes it kind of a different value proposition um, when you might have 
you know, eight, 900 people using a bridge in Bolivia, you'd be having several thousands, you know, thousands of people in, in Rwanda or Uganda mm-hmm. using a similar structure. I, I'm still, I can't believe the 78% is in Africa. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. yeah, it's it's kind of... Um, and you wouldn't think that. I mean, I think about some of the communities where we've worked in Asia Pacific and certainly there's isolation there. But I guess when you're talking about population density, I could see that. Yeah. And I think probably part of our constraints is we do have upper and lower bounds really where we're doing analysis and we're using World Bank data. But they're like for a lot of those really small countries in terms of both geography and population, they actually get cut out of our sample size. So to be really fair, it's probably um, that's out of a, you know, essentially a threshold of countries where there's at least, um, I think it's a 850,000 people that are isolated and a need for at least a hundred, um, locations of a bridge. So within that subset is where you get the 78% live in Africa. So you you do cut out a lot of the island nations in that. Okay. So you're an engineer. You caught me. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty amazing. So how, Tell me, how did how did you even go on this career path? How did that even start? Yeah, such a good question. Um, I ask myself that every day. <laughs> I mean, it's such a valuable uh, skill set to have. You have such a practical, technical skill set. But not everybody, and oftentimes not many females, think to go down that path. Well, you know, what's interesting is um, I, I, I did my undergrad at the University of Iowa, and I, I largely picked my, you know, where to go to college based on who would um, give me a scholarship to play soccer. And I think there's like so many silver linings and, you know, the universe looking out for you when you make these kinds of big life decisions on limited information. But I ended up finding myself as a um, double major in studio art and civil engineering, largely because I wanted to be an architect. Mm, Okay. Uh, there wasn't an architecture program, but I really wanted to play for the Big Ten and one of the best programs in the Big Ten. Um, and so, you know, you know, fast forwarding to studying abroad um, after my junior year, it kind of occurred to me that, wow, no one's going to pay me to play this, this thing called soccer in a year from now. Um, what am I going to do? <laughs> you know? And I kind of had, you know, I think there's a quarter life crisis embedded in, in so many millennials experience sometime in their 20s. And I think I hit mine pretty early where I really was searching for what was my purpose. And, and I had lost a dear, dear aunt uh, to breast cancer that year and became motivated to think about perhaps a move into the health care world in some capacity. Um, so I'm living in Fiji, you know, newly off of a flight from the middle of Iowa, where I didn't even know where Fiji was, frankly. Iowa to Fiji. Wow. Iowa to Fiji. I know, really random. Lots of differences. And, you know, I arrived and was really trying to, you know, have some soul searching. And so I decided to volunteer with a local chapter of the Breast Cancer Foundation. And, you know, one of the, the tasks that we had was to, you know, essentially teach women about the importance of early breast cancer detection. Um, and so we would go out to these communities and you've got your pamphlets and, you know, it's largely a group of Fijian women. And here I am like the gopher trying to hold, hold the, bring, bring all the things with us. And our ability to reach the communities oftentimes was based on our ability to uh, get to a river that was low or not. And our decision to get into that community oftentimes was like, well, we can't make it today. Let's turn around. And it was 
you know, didn't really occur to me what the solution to that was, but it occurred as deeply unjust that just because you were born on the wrong side of that river, you were going to be missing out on this tremendous opportunity to learn about how important early breast cancer detection is. And during one of these little trips, we came across a pedestrian bridge. And it was, I don't know, Kristen, it was like this eureka moment where, you know, here I am, civil engineering background, um, fancy myself something of a creative. And I'm like, well, this isn't hard. That's easy. You know, that's just, that's just a couple cables and some wood panels and look, we can get to this community. And that same bridge is providing these kids to come back to school. And, you know, these farmers, I'm sure to equally have access. And it occurred as such, such a perfect solution for such a simple problem. Um, so I, you know, at the ripe old age of 20, uh, decided to come back to the United States, really determined to, you know, essentially build at least a bridge. You know, I was like, this is a big problem. I'm sure it's not constrained to Fiji. Um, and ended up doing my honors project um, as an undergraduate on building a bridge in Peru. And that was really eye-opening in a lot of ways because I think I started to realize that this was a huge global need. And in the pursuit of trying to find an organization to do this with, um, I, I realized that there was really no one doing this on a global scale. And the magnitude of the problem occurred is much grander than I think I even could have imagined. Um, so I ended up going to graduate school and uh, writing a thesis, master's thesis in engineering on how could you standardize bridge design that effectively could make it so you could replicate these structures cost effectively in a locally appropriate way around the world. Um, and I, and I, remember, I remember calling my mom, who still lives in Iowa City, Iowa, and I was like, Mom, you know, I think once I figure out how to design these bridges, all of the governments in the world are just going to go build them. And it's going to be great. The problem will be solved. It's, you know, I'll go get a real job. Trust me. I promise. <laughs> and, you know, it, like any good mom, it's like, whatever you want, honey. Like, do what you need to do. And, you know, I, like I ended up spending a number of years building this organization um, and, and starting to hire engineers that were better than I was and operations people to build this infrastructure that are from the places we're trying to build them in and, you know, people that understood assessments and everything in between. And it started to feel like, why is no one just picking this up and running with it? Like this is a simple technology. It's very cost effective in terms of economic rates of return. It pays for itself many, many times over. And it occurred to me, Kristen, that this is not a technical challenge, but a capital mobilization one. Like how can we functionally get money to these governments to pay for this? Um, and that's when I ended up taking a sabbatical and I went and did, um, I did an MBA program at Oxford university just to focus on how could we finance this rural infrastructure at scale and do this in a way that was, um, you know, really in support of governments doing this for themselves as opposed to us, you know, masquerading as some sort of white savior complex thing of come save you. <laughs> Um, and it's really transformed the way that we see our work. And I'm really, you know, as it relates to a job moving into vocation, um, I'm really feeling that this might be my life's work uh, as we start to think about, you know, is this an intractable problem that actually could be solved globally in our lifetime? Um, and it seems like it could. That's That's amazing, that journey that you went on. And so when you did make this realization, so what 
what is the value proposition that you go to these governments with that is having them own this and take this on and invest in their people? Super good question. Um, I think a bunch of it has been able to point to third party research. Whereas obviously I can sit here and tell you all day long, bridges make a lot of difference. Trust me. Look at these great photos. Um, you know, governments don't make decisions on photos or great stories. They make them on data. And so, you know, something that really was a pivot point for us was partnering with third-party academic researchers uh, who are looking at um, essentially the attribution of effect on health, education, and economic outcomes for households and rural communities when you're controlling for a bridge. So said another way, it's what if you put a bridge in this community and not in this one? And you study that over a sample size that's significant enough to tease out what happens when you get a bridge compared to not. And these researchers were able to find some really profound findings across a number of different, you know, more predictable outcomes. For example, labor market income. If you have a bridge, you know you can get a job, you go get it, even if it's just daily, you're going to have more money in your pocket. That's kind of intuitive. But what they also found, which we could never have really been able to capture, was with the bridge, communities were able to have their farmers take a very different kind of risk behavior. So just imagine you're a rural farmer and you walk everywhere. And you're thinking about, well, you know, how predictable is this rainy season? How certain am I that I'm going to be able to make it to that Wednesday market after I harvest my crop? How certain am I that I'm not going to have to have some surplus of production, you know, vis-a-vis more corn or more, you know, soybeans, sorghum, to be able to feed my family just in case that river rises? And all of that uncertainty for farmers in these communities without a bridge made it so they were not able to be as profitable. But when you put in a bridge, that risk behavior entirely changes. And these researchers found that when you know that you can go to a market, you don't even have to use the bridge in order to gain the benefit. So farmers buy more inputs. They buy more fertilizer, more um, uh, seed. They will plant more land if they have it. And critically, they also don't have to store surplus food to feed their families in the case of a shock event, like a flood. And so taking all of those factors together, farmer profitability rose 75% in this randomized control trial. And so if you think about it, like that means at the household level, you know, in Rwanda, if you're having four, let's say, say four, $500 per family per year, like you're looking at huge increases, like 106, what is that, $160, $70 new money in your pocket this year, just from being able to predictably have access because of a bridge. And, and so you start to think about, oh, I, I kind of skipped a part there, Kristen, is I'm taking farmer profitability and labor market income together it ends up increasing household level income over 30%. So if you take those numbers, whatever that, you know, I should probably not spitball here and have a calculator in front of me, but if you increase farm or household level income 30% and you're starting with four or $500 per family a year, you're really looking at profound changes in what disposable income people have and they can make the choice of how to spend that money. And so to your original question, how do we get governments excited about this? is that makes a huge difference at the human level or the family level. Bigger differences at the community level, so much that these bridges pay for themselves in about one to two years, depending on population density. But think about that at a national level. And think about if 1.1 million people 
start to actively participate in the rural economies, and they're all of a sudden having their incomes reach the threshold and levels of those of people who are not currently isolated, you know, you're looking at moving the needle in the GDP. And if you can come make a value proposition like that to a government, it's a win-win. You know, connect your people and your economy will grow. Wow. That's incredible data to have and to show the returns on on this work. So you were, you, you said something that I was struck by because I've been having this thought in my head definitely over the last week. I've I just returned from a week in Kenya and you know the thought the when you were in Fiji you said that how did somebody get born on one side of the river right Mm -hmm. and so in some of the communities that I had spent time in last week that was definitely something that was in my mind is you know how does somebody get born into one place and then somebody else into another place and and then how you can identify those things and and try to figure out how you can you can aid those people or you can figure out how to support them and you know it is it's just a really interesting thing to think about you know how were you born in Iowa and I was born in North Carolina and we ended up in the lines of work that we did and then the the farmer that before he had the bridge was not able to maximize his profits and his productivity until he had a bridge that came there into the community where he was born yeah, I mean, isn't that so confronting? Yeah, it is. Yeah, and it's, I don't know how it is for, for you, um, but I think a lot of this social justice work, there is this, like, seen sense of social inequality. And, like, you and I are standing on the on the right side of the road, however you want to think of that. And it's, sure. I think it's, like, such a driving force to have the deep opportunity to even see that privilege. And, you know, I think that, with with that seeing comes a deep responsibility. <laughs> right. That's how I feel about it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm curious for you, like what motivates you and your work around, you know, like obviously the Special Olympics populations, like there's a lot of inequality baked into that. Like how 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 are you driven in your own uh, sense of purpose? Yeah. So the population that we serve is people with intellectual disabilities and I think it's a combination of things. I mean, first of all, the deep inequality that this population faces. And it's not just it's not just in Kenya or in uh, a developing country, but it's in the United States and in the Western world as well, where there is a stigma, a discrimination. People with intellectual disabil- disabilities aren't giving an opportunity to mm-hmm. show their full gifts, reach their potential be provided the tools that they need in order to do so. You know, I think it's just see, you know, meeting a person with disabilities, seeing all that they can accomplish, seeing what happens when they do have the same opportunities and the same access as you or I, and just feeling that feeling that injustice so deeply that and where you know that you can make a change, right? Where where you can go into community and educate people and you can train healthcare providers and you can address some of these, these access pieces. And sometimes the interventions are so simple. I think that, you know, as you were talking about that, the bridge in Fiji, how simple it was. And sometimes for us, there, there's complex levels, of course, to it, but sometimes it is really simple 
where it is going to a community and telling a family that, um, or a chief of a community that just because a person has disabilities doesn't mean they should go to the witch doctor. They should also access regular services and they don't have a curse. And it's sometimes that simple breakdown of stigma that can truly change a community or just showing what a person can add to their community by, if they're given that opportunity. So yeah, you know, I don't know what the one, one thing is that, that drives it for me, but there's a, certainly a layer of factors and I feel very strongly about this work. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you for all the work you do. You guys are amazing. You guys are such an inspiration, you know, getting it done. Okay. One, one question about your career path. So you said, this is a calling. Okay. So how do you prioritize your calling so that you're, I'm sure that you're one of those people that you wake up in the middle of the night with an idea or that you can't sleep because you've met somebody and they can't access their school or their healthcare facilities. So how do you balance your life? <laughs> oh no. Hard question. Um, I mean, I think what's challenging uh, for me personally is that I feel like there's some sense of enmeshment between my personal identity and the organization that I've largely um, helped to grow and to create. And so I think in that, you know, I'm kind of the bridge girl, you know, and that's, that's in my social settings, that's in my familial settings, that's certainly my work settings. Um, and I think that there's some, uh, implicit pressure with that because, you know, it feels like there's a, such a huge part of who I am and this is my purpose. And if I'm not doing that thing at all hours, at all days, at all costs, like what, who am I not helping? Um, and I think that that's probably a shared experience that many people have in the social sector more generally. Um, but finding balance is like a daily, uh, priority and it's a daily, you know, it's not natural for me to mm-hmm. think how to, you know, create the time. Uh, but I had, I had a mentor who, you know, gave me the really great visual adage about, you know, everyone has the same size cup or vessel. And it's all about how do you get your big rocks in, uh, into that vessel before all the sand fills up and, and takes over. Um, like I really liked that because I, I do think all of us are equipped with the same number of hours and frankly, most of us have the same level of talent. Um, and, and probably just the differences where people can really make profound impact in the world, but also, you know, have a reasonable home life or a reasonable, you know, sense of self care. I think it's based more on their ability to get the big rocks in that vessel and not burn out. And so, uh, you know, I think my wife helps me with that. I think my friends hold me accountable to that. Um, some of my teammates here at work help me <laughs> with that. You know, just mirroring when it seems like I'm getting my priorities um, too heavily skewed towards the direction of just the organization and not thinking more holistically about how to care for myself um, to, so I can make sure I'm here in a long Yeah, I love that rock analogy. Okay, so tell me about your wife. The beautiful, the beautiful Allison. The beautiful Allison. Allison's a fantastic uh, upstate New Yorker, like the real upstate, not the like just outside of New York City, but the like Rochester, New York. Um, she is uh, by training uh, an existential coach, and that's like her master's background. But she's essentially like an executive coach that works with um, a number of you know different kinds of clients, but mainly attorneys. Um, how can they build? 
businesses. And so if you think about how that translates into our partnership, is she knows how to work with very type A high-performing individuals um, and to help them reflect maybe what's getting in their way in their professional and personal success. Um, and so how that's translated for us is that, you know, we have to start most of our conversations with, is this a coaching moment or is this me being your partner moment? Um, <laughs> she has a good skill set to, to have married oh, I, you for sure. Oh, it's, I know. And uh, she wrote her master's thesis essentially on the, um, the felt experience of the social entrepreneur, um, you know, and how that is like some of these, these questions of personal enmeshment and identity are all kind of baked into, you know, some of the big life questions on, you know, what are we meant to do with this, uh, one wild life we have. So she's been really, uh, you know, both my biggest fan and I think, you know, a strong advocate for helping me understand how I can be here for the long run um, through balance as well as your commitment. So she's awesome. I love that. And that's, I mean, you, you have a beautiful partnership and are clearly made for each other. And so you and Allison have been embarking on a home renovation project. Oh no. Social media gave me away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it's interesting, Kristen, is that I, I have a bit of a, I think going back to that creative, you know, art undergrad, I, I like to design in the world around me and to, you know, imagine space and texture and, 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 you know, colors. And I think a big part of my personal, um, exploration of my own creativity certainly is in my work at Bridges to Prosperity, but I have always had this passion for houses. So this is actually the fourth house, um, that I've had the opportunity to flip, um, usually living in them. But, you know, you buy these rundown, maybe good bones, sometimes not houses and put just all the love and care and character in the world into them. Um, and then kind of slowly, uh, figure out a way to depart and find another new family and new home, uh, to give them this home. So yeah, you're right. We just finished one and put them on the market this week here in, in Denver. And it's been such a, a labor of love. You know, there's an innumerable number of like questions of, as you, I know you and George did this, but like the colors, the fixtures, the, you know, where's the wall go? Where does the window go? Um, does that wall need to be there? And, you know, I think they, to be able to see it all come together and to create a space that really is nice to be in and it's beautiful and can create home for someone is something I love to do. So we keep busy. I love that. And it is when you go through the renovation project, at least you've done this four times for our first time, you don't even think about all the decisions you're going to have to make. I mean, when you're standing in Home Depot trying to pick what toilet you want, it's like you didn't think that you, you think about all the glamorous stuff, right? Oh, what wall color am I going to choose and what light fixture? But then there's all of these other decisions that that do come along with it that, that we were very surprised by many of those in our first journey through it or through a renovation. I think people have no idea, yeah. you know, I, I think it's actually really good that like most of the population just wants to buy a house that's done because decision fatigue is real. <laughs> it's so real, you know, that's so true. Well, the photos of your renovation are gorgeous. If I lived in Denver, I might be on the market for, for that house. Oh, you're so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is beautiful. Allison actually last week was like, are we sure we want to sell this one? I know. I can't believe you <laughs> want to sell that one. Yeah, it's it's beautiful. But no, it's you know, it's kind of part of the journey. I want to continue to do work I love and to feel really committed to cause, like the social causes I care about. 
Um, and as we all know, you don't make all the money in the world working for a nonprofit. So having this opportunity to do something I love and also makes pretty good money on the side is, uh, we, th- we think of it as something of a win-win. For sure. Well, Avery, let me just wrap us up with a couple of our end of podcast questions. Love that. So first, who is someone that you think illuminates in their life? Somebody else that you that you know or you know of that illuminates in their life? Well, you know, I was thinking about this question, um, and, and Krista Tippett came to mind, um, and, and she, she is a podcaster. So I, I feel like I know her in the way that I think people feel like they know people on television because she's with me at all hours, always talking, and also she's a great author. Um, but I've never met her. I've, I've seen her live, but spent many, many more hours listening to her work. And I think why I feel like she's so, uh, illuminating is that she's curious. Um, the way that she inquiries and questions both people in the world around her, I think is like gives hope and light in almost every angle that she cuts. Um, and I think that that is just, um, you know, such a beautiful character to have. Um, I love her on being podcast. So good. Yes, right? it is so good. Yeah, I'm obsessed. <laughs> uh, what's one book recommendation you have? I th- I think one of the most important books I've read as it relates to forming my sense of you know direction was Mountains Beyond Mountains by Paul Farmer. Love that um, book. And I keep coming back to it. You know, I think I, most everything I'm reading these days is a little bit more helping to provide the um, counterpoint or counterfactual to some of this work. Like uh, another great book is uh, The Divide. But, um, you know, I think Paul Farmer really, you know, his journey and how Tracy Kidder captured that journey was really inspiring to just imagine how, um, you know, some great vision and building a great team can really move mountains. Yeah, that's great. Okay, I'm going to have to look up the divide as well. And so it's a little bit more of a counterfactual to why aid in general is, uh, is, is, a, you know, much more complex and, uh, multifaceted than many make it out to be. Okay. So our podcast started out of a book club, so we love food. So would love for you to share one of your favorite recipes or a meal that you love with our listeners. Yeah, I'm. I'm like, unfortunately, with all the um, things I'm, I am decent at. I'm a terrible cook, so I'm <laughs> like, I was like, oh man, recipe. That's like a hard one. So something um, that Allison makes is typically uh, what you say your your favorite meal is. Is she the cook? What, what? Well, not really either. But whatever's on the table is like a favorite. Um, but honestly, like Indian food in general is is like such a go-to, which I know is like big swaths of different types of food. But I have like a tender soft spot for like the alu gobis and chana masalas of the world. So if I am going to cook, I pretty much will do one number of recipes and I just overspice it to cover up the lack of ability, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's, that's the secret sauce right there. It's just a really nice. simple Indian meal with way too much spice. Oh my gosh, that's funny. And then last, what is your message for the world? I think there's a lot of messages. Um, but one that really drives me in the day to day is like, you know, just, just take one step in front of the other, um, after the other, then I think that if each of us were committed to doing just incremental small things in the daily day to day in the individual interactions we have with the people around us, you know, I think that shared common consciousness and our shared kind of sense of forward motion would 
be all the more swift if we all took responsibility um, to do that. So being present um, with your people and with what you're doing and trying to do that in a purposeful way, I think is really important. Thank you so much, Avery. You are truly a remarkable woman. I loved hearing about your work and how you're changing the world. If you want to learn more about Bridges to Prosperity, you can visit their website at www.bridgestoprosperity.org or their Instagram at Bridges to Prosperity. To learn more about the Illuminate podcast, you can visit us at www.theilluminatepodcast.com or on Instagram at The Illuminate Podcast. And if you loved this episode, we would be so grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk with you next week.